It's David Palumbo Liu as the head of the Comparative Literature Department and the Human Rights Collaboratory at Stanford University in California. As a dedicated scholar and an even more dedicated educator, Palumbo Liu has a PhD in Comparative Literature in Chinese, English, and French areas of study from the University of California in Berkeley. He has traveled across the world to pursue his fields of study, mostly focused in East Asia and Europe. Palumbo Liu is a widely published and award-winning academic for his work in comparative literature and cultural criticisms. For the last 30 plus years, Palumbo Liu has approached his scholarship, academic research, and outreach to expand ideas of global human rights and decency, shining a rational light on areas of the world he feels lack these ideals in an attempt to seek a more unified and worldly perspective of said ideals. In this episode, Palumbo Liu sits down with Mia at the, culturals, at the Centre Culturel Irlandais in Paris, France, to talk more about his work, how he approaches it, and what in his life has led him to it. David Palumbo Liu, welcome to The Creative Process. So, I published two books in 2012, and after doing that, I decided to sort of stop and pause and see how I could write in a different way for a different audience because I felt that I had already published six books and I had reached that audience and um, I was speaking to academics but I wasn't speaking to many more people. So I happen to have a friend who has an um, online journal called Truth Out and it's a very progressive um, online journal and he kept on saying to me, even before I finished the books, his name is Henry Giroux. He's a very, very well-known activist, scholar, educator. And he said, David, you really have to write for more than 2,000 people at a time. So he kept on nudging me to contribute to Truth Out, and I really didn't feel I had anything particularly interesting to say. And then in, at that time, um, I went to Oxford for a term. And while I was at Oxford, this was during the whole Occupy movement, and there was a very big public event in Oxford called Occupy Oxford. So I went out there and it, they had organized it in a very interesting way in that it was not just Occupy Oxford, but they had brought people from Oakland, California out. Uh, very different demographic, of course. So it was Occupy Oakland, Occupy Oxford. And there was a very interesting back and forth between the two different groups of um, organizers and activists. And after witnessing and participating in that event, I thought, well, this is something I could write about from my particular vantage point at this moment. And so I submitted my very first blog to Truth Out, and they accepted it. And um, after getting it out into the public, it became very, very exciting for me to reach a new audience and to get feedback and to also put aside my fear of appearing in that venue with that voice, as a matter of fact. And after that, it sort of just grew and grew and grew. And so now I have been placing articles and in The Guardian, for example, and um, in uh, The Nation and other larger, um, and Jacobin and other larger venues. So um, at this point, having done that for about six years, now I'm thinking of going back and writing another book, but writing a book for a non-academic press. So the book I'm writing, which is called Speaking Out of Place, is gonna be published by Haymarket Books, which is an activist press that publishes people like Arundhati Roy and Rebecca Solnit and Angela Davis. So I'm working with the um, editor, editor there, Anthony Arnov, to really um, try to figure out how to write a book, but in maintaining the kind of 
public voice I have in my I have in my blogs. So that's what I came here to Paris to do, and then I was swept up in meeting wonderful people like yourself and others who are so networked and so involved in the artistic and cultural and political scene that um, I have to confess I haven't written a word of my book, but I've written about four or five other blogs. Yeah. And Paris is just an amazing place to meet people um, from different walks of life, but they're all so interested in creativity and uh, combining artistic and intellectual work. And so it's a very special environment for me to be in, and I'm sorry to have to leave in a week. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes, because you also participated in the Battle of the North. Yes. And uh, so you'll be writing about that as well, I imagine, in this new book? Or Yes, that's, I wrote one short piece for The Guardian about that uh, conference, which was very path-breaking. And uh, I've gotten to know some of the people in the Parti des Indigènes and um, understand what their agenda is a bit. And so that will be integrated into my book. Essentially, I'm taking a lot of my blogs and expanding them into longer pieces and putting them together and synthesizing a lot of those ideas. And I also, as you know, um, participated in the um, day-long conference on the Rohingya uh, crisis in Burma um, and that was held at the National Assembly and uh, it was really a very interesting um, set of participants even, uh, uh, from the uh, Nobel Prize winner uh, the Peace Award um, from um, Iran uh, Shirin Abadi to the president of the Bangladeshi parliament to uh, NGOs, workers, um, and journalists and scholars. It's a very, very uh, terrible case of the genocide in Burma. And again, it was interesting to see an amalgam of people, not just intellectuals, not just diplomats, not just NGO workers, but a whole set of people coming together from different walks of life to try to address this problem. And um, that's something I'm trying to do again in my own work is to m make contact with people from different works of walks of life to see what kind of language, what kinds of concerns uh, they're interested in, and so I can match my interests with them. Um, and I was thinking of some of the, the, the uh, questions that you raised for me to think about, which are on my mind already, as you know. And, you know, at the Arab Institute here in Paris, I took my class to a really interesting exhibit. It was the second time this has been put on, and the idea is to imagine what a national museum of Palestine would look like. And I think it was a couple of years ago, they did one installation, and they brought wonderful Palestinian art out and they exhibited it. And then they, of course, it was a, um, uh, a mo uh, temporary exhibit, and they took it down. And they came back this year and did a whole other set of artworks. And uh, when I took my class through it, there were some obvious uh, paintings and photographs, especially some journalistic work that really had a very strong political content. And then there were some that were um, all just universal artworks. And I asked my class, why do you think they combined those things? And I got my class to think about how we tend to uh, reduce people to one cause or one symbol or one thing and that certainly the Palestinians are, are, are in a terrible political and human, uh, terrible humanitarian situation as well, but yet precisely their humanity shows through in the artworks that are speaking in a um, more abstract way, just to the fact that 
what are we struggling for? We're struggling to recognize them as human beings, not just as causes. More than just the sum of their struggles. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's precisely it. And I was thinking of uh, a line from uh, Mahmoud Darwish, one of the, the greatest poets, and he said something along the lines of, uh, I'm paraphrasing this, that, you know, we don't have a homeland, but I hope that my poems can create a space to imagine a homeland. And, and that's really the key to, to what I'm trying to do in this book is trying to imagine different ways of understanding political meaning uh, so that we're not simply tied to political parties and elections and, and statistics and polls, but trying to um, become sensitive to the ways that the imagination gives us fertile ground to think of politics and just simply socially being together in unconventional ways. Uh, that that might translate into action in different ways. Yeah. And so, in a way, this writing for a general public and um, the considering the political and social dimensions of art, you began studying journalism. Mm -hmm. Was does literature always have that political dimension to you, or social uh, have a, a yeah. Did it always have that purpose? Yeah. Well, I think I told you this story, but I'll repeat it for the, yes. for the transcription, <laughs> is that it was actually the opposite in that when I was an undergraduate, um, one of my favorite classes was journalism. And so I enrolled in it, and I was very close to becoming a major, uh, making that my focus uh, in, in journalism. And the class was run by a journalist. And on the last day of class, he brought in three or four of his uh, journalist friends, and they all sat around and they were talking about their lives and all they had done, and everybody was super excited about you know becoming one of them. And so during the question and answer period, we all asked, well, if you were us and you wanted to be a journalist, what would you major in? And we all figured that was a stupid question because of course they were gonna say journalism. And what was fascinating was that every single one of them said, major in anything except journalism mm -hmm. and we said well why and they said because you can always learn how to write if you can if you're good with words you can always learn how to write like a journalist but you have to have something to write about and so I thought okay well and they said well you know, economics or art or history or politics just learn a field and then you can adapt uh, your journalism to that subject and so I was thrown back on the idea of what am I going to major in, because in American universities you need to have a concentration. And so I thought, well, what are my second favorite classes? And I thought uh, the classes that I liked second most to journalism were comparative literature courses. And I realized at that point that the professors who I was studying with, studying comparative literature with, in fact, were all ex-journalists. Ex they, they had all been um, exiled from Greece after the, the junta. And so they were leftist intellectuals who had been journalists, and they had such a fertile mind and talents that they could teach courses on literature because they studied literature. And so I said to myself, that's the perfect combination. Mm -hmm. So I majored in literature, and I wrote my first book on 12th century Chinese poetry for very personal reasons. And then, you know, wrote academic books. And so uh, this phase of my um, public life really is going back to that ideal of being both uh, writing for, for the public but, and writing journalism, but also having a sensibility that looks at culture in a global way.
Well, I think there are two. One is to, well, there are several, but <laughs> one of the main ones is to not tell people what to think or say that one way of thinking is correct, but to have them discover it on their own. In other words, give them a set of options. I think that especially in American universities, um, which are becoming more and more like pre-professional schools. Um, Very much efficient. Yeah, yeah. And so the students come in already knowing what they want to do. And so they've already excluded and uh, taken out of consideration all sorts of options, uh, which is exactly the opposite of what a university is supposed to do. It's supposed to give you a broad set of, of possible ways of, of thinking about life and training your mind and your talents. And so I like to open that up more for students. And so I will present um, um, a political or historical case and say, well, let's, let's try to re-describe it in different ways. Uh, let's try to understand how it's been presented to us. And without setting that aside as being false, examine the foundations of that truth and imagine other possibilities. I think that's the first step um, for any kind of ethical consideration is to understand that, uh, that truth is um, an assertion and to try to test the viability of that assertion and the conditions that that assertion is made upon. And again, that's why, where art comes in as, as being extremely uh, useful is because it shows in a different medium how uh, the world might appear. Uh, so I think that's the first thing that I think about in terms of an ethical presentation and uh, a responsibility in the classroom. And also the other thing that I think is really important is to listen because it's easy just to profess. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, professors love to hear their own voices and they have a captive audience. Uh, so it's very easy to get to fall in love with the sound of your own voice. And often students um, become um, complicit in that because they, it's easier for them to be passive mm -hmm. and not active. And so I, I like teaching smaller classes. I like to have students um, uh, discuss things with me and with each other. And so I think that's really important is to um, to listen to what students are saying. I mean, that's the reason I went into education was to have conversations. I often tell my students when they say, well, you know, they're not sure what kind of job they want. And I say to them often enough, think of the kinds of conversations that you like to have. What kinds of things would you like to put your energy behind, whether it's inventing something or thinking about uh, wise investments or whatever. You know, you're somehow going to be spending at least eight hours of your life, five days a week in the United States talking about certain things, and it should bear some connection with things that you think are important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have in the United States this thing called um, community-based learning, and it's the idea that um, you could take a class for credit and you spend half the time in the classroom and you spend the second half of the time uh, working with the community organization. And the, the idea is not to bring 
the knowledge from the university into these community organizations which might have to do with healthcare, education, um, uh, the arts, but rather it's a um, two-way learning process in which you understand the work of the organization, uh, their challenges, their rewards, and you uh, collaborate with them on a project that once the relationship is, is ended after the end of the class, formally, that it can be sustained. So there's a very interesting um, method called the $100 project, which is that you give, because especially at places like Stanford, students are used to having tremendous financial resources. So the first inclination, often enough for charities or any kind of you know, work like this, is to go in and throw a bunch of money at it. And so we only give the students $100, which is, which is not even uh, 100 euro. And um, they have to invent a project that can then uh, be implanted or embedded in the organization and self-sustaining. So the $100 is just to get things going. Uh, so I think that helps us understand how, how the human imagination and the human mind uh, given lack of material resources, can come up with marvelous inventions. Mm. What are some of the interesting inventions? Well, one, one for example uh, was we went to a community and they taught um, some of the young men how to do, um, I don't know what the word would be in, in Europe, but tune-ups on cars. In other words, <laughs> change the spark <coughs> plugs and change the oil and just, you know, and, and this has to be done to cars every two to 5,000 miles. And so they then became just a team of uh, tune-up experts going around into the community and giving, you know, doing tune-ups on cars for, um, for not a lot of money. And so it helped the community in that they could get their tar cars maintained. It helped the center because they had a steady flow of, of money coming in. And so it's things like that. It didn't require uh, anything except for, s for the materials to show them how to do the tune-ups because it doesn't require a lot of, it doesn't require the car to be lifted into the air. You can, you can do a tune-up fairly easily. Um, so things like that or um, passing on knowledge so that then you train teachers to teach uh, and then they can train teachers to teach and it becomes a way of, of and that could be photography. Um, for example, we, we basically taught people how to use their um, smartphones to take photographs and that then became part of um, uh, uh, an artistic project uh, and then that, that trained them how to become photographers. Or for example, um, somebody had an application where you could um, take um, environmental readings with your, with your cellular phone. And so they just sort of went about to different environments and took readings of pollution, et cetera, and that all fed back in. And this was their neighborhood, so it was helping their neighborhoods. It was helping the scientists get that data. Mm. So it, again, it worked in, uh, in both ways. And uh, just going back to, to your first book, because you spoke about it, have you having more personal yeah. reasons. Yeah. I think you went to Taiwan for, for research for that. Yeah. I wonder if you could speak about your books and their evolutions towards, uh, it seems like right. they've evolved towards having more um, work in the community and more of a bigger social dimension. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a great question because I was brought up in a, um, I was born in upstate New York, but I was raised in California. 
and my parents were both Chinese, but they were uh, from very different backgrounds, and, and they spoke different dialects. And so I think at the age uh, when you know they started a family in the United States, uh, they tried to teach uh, me and my brother and sister Chinese, um, but it didn't really catch because all of our friends were not Chinese speakers. So, uh, and you don't talk to adults that much in Asian families. So, uh, we really um, became uh, monolingual. And it wasn't until I went to university that I got interested in, uh, when I was interested in comparative literature and learning French, for example. And then I thought, um, rather than learn another European language, perhaps I would take uh, some time and finally learn Chinese. Got a second degree in Chinese at Berkeley and went into my doctoral work thinking I would become authentically Chinese by going far back in time and going to the roots of Chinese culture. So it was a very, you know, th that was the time when that television series Roots came out. And so it was very important for some of us who felt that our ethnic and racial heritage had been marginalized to go back and, and claim it. And so I went to Taiwan and I studied Chinese for a year. And then later as I was writing the dissertation, um, my, my wife and son and I went to um, Kyoto for a year, which is where a lot of uh, interesting scholarship on classical Chinese was done. So after two years in Asia, I wrote my first book on this very, very obscure 12th century Chinese poet who was very, very difficult to read because he kept on using obscure allusions. And so you had to track down these um, images and phrases in these huge uh, Chinese encyclopedias from the 15th century. And so it was a very painstaking and difficult but very rewarding process. And then the second book I wrote was on Asian Americans and um, the history, culture, and politics. And the reason that happened was that while I was at Berkeley writing my dissertation on 12th century Chinese poetry, a professor asked me to help teach a course of his in Asian American studies. And I said, well, I don't really know anything about the field. And this was way back then. I would say in 1984, 85. And he said, that's okay, we're all inventing this field. This is all knowledge that uh, has not been formed yet. But he was very interested in seeing how Asian American history fit into American history and how we could understand uh, American history through that lens of ethnic studies. And again, that was a very interesting course in that the University of California at Berkeley had a requirement back then called American Institutions. And so you had to take a course that taught students about the institutions that were formed um, by the government and by the Constitution, um, like education or health, things like that, and then see how those institutions became uh, realized in, in our own communities. And so this class looked at the gap between the general set of institutions and the particular needs of ethnic communities. So what were the particular, let's say, um, health care needs of immigrant communities? Or what were the barriers to citizenship, et cetera? So big issues like health, education, welfare, politics, um, um, 
became examined through the lens of a particular group whose access to those institutions was very different. Uh, and that's be that became the basis of my second book. And then from that point on, I began writing with regard to sort of larger problems of culture almost on a global scale. I became very interested in universal human the idea of universal human rights, uh, which is part of the work I'm doing now to see what the aspirations of that were and then what the, um, the difficulties of that concept are when you try to enact them uh, in the real world. And so, again, that's been very interesting here in Paris because I've given a course on human rights and France likes to advertise itself as the birthplace of human rights and in many ways it was, uh, especially the idea of uh, one uh, rule of law for all people but that's been tested very, very vigorously here in terms of immigrants, refugees, Muslims. And so it's been fascinating seeing, seeing those things play out in France. I'm Chase Van Langen, a senior student at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, studying history, political science, and international relations. I'm an associate interview and podcast producer for the creative process. For me, Professor Palumbo-Lu brings up a lot of poignant points about higher education and its ability to enrich students, teachers, and even those in surrounding communities. He mentions the current state of higher education facing incoming students today as more of a pre-planned out educational program instead of a classic institution of discovery and invention of higher learning like it was however many decades ago. In a way to combat this emerging idea of the cookie-cutter educational path, Palumbo Lu seeks to challenge his students in different ways through his teaching, such as learning new skills and using those skills to help in their surrounding communities. To me, this is a very valuable tactic used as an educator as it teaches students to not only attempt to learn outside of a typical classroom setting or environment, but to do so in a more independent way to better enrich themselves and their own education. Presently at my university, there are not many classes that I've taken that try these sort of techniques when approaching uh, common classroom or lecture material. All of these methods used by Palumbo Lu cycle back into his personal ideas of teaching and researching from a global perspective. His scholarship focuses on not as well-known international incidents and even events that he wishes to flesh out and make more widely known throughout his field, such as the Rohingya genocide and refugee crisis in Myanmar. Teaching and researching from this kind of worldly perspective further expands both knowledge and tolerance on behalf of his students and even the institution in which he works. Now, when teachers and students alike better understand the interconnectedness of the international community, the easier it is to understand the more human element of international incidents and problems, such as climate change or the Rohingya crisis, as Palumbo Lu mentioned earlier. He also mentioned how trying to provide a narrative through academic literature instead of established political norms would better help people in both local and international communities to better respond and understand the problems that they both face. Now I agree with Palumbo Lu and try to approach my education and learning from the same global viewpoint in an attempt to better understand not only what goes on within, say, my community or my college campus, but the world at large. Now later on in the interview, 
me and David will talk about his own work when teaching and what in his life has motivated him to seek out literature and trying to write this new global perspective. If you're just joining us, we're talking with David Palumbo Liu, Professor and Director of Comparative Literature at Stanford University. And so I also want to go back to some of you. You f ended up founding uh, the department at Stanford on uh, Asian Americans, uh, on Asian mm -hmm. studies? Yes, uh, Asian American sites, yeah. Yes, and also, just if, if you could just talk about some of those um, publications you founded and the c your collaboratories. Oh, right. Uh, well, I was brought to Stanford because uh, for a very long time, students and some faculty had said we need a program in ethnic studies because Stanford didn't have one very, very late uh, into the evolution of ethnic studies. Berkeley had one. Why do you think that um, I think because it was a more conservative place. It was a private institution. It was very prestigious and it didn't it didn't know that there was any particular academic viability to ethnic studies. So it took us, I would say, almost a decade to convince the administration that it was a viable field, there were people being trained in it, there were people getting PhDs in it, they were getting jobs. And so when we proved that there was a viable and substantial set of, of, of research materials and professional organizations behind it. And when students kept complaining that they wanted to learn and they, there was no venue for them to learn, finally you know, things lined up and we were able to do that. Uh, so th it's, what the, it's called the Center for Comparative Studies in Race and Ethnicity because we didn't want simply an Asian American Studies Department and an a Jewish studies department and a you know Chicano studies. We wanted something that would bring groups together uh, and not isolate them, but have them collaborate across these different lines. So that's what the comparative studies in race and ethnicity is all about, and that that sort of continues my own interest in comparative studies rather than doing just Chinese and French or French and English, but sure. rather it just keeps us yeah bubbles, yeah exactly precisely yeah. And then similarly, the Teaching Human Rights Collaboratory is international in scope. Uh, and this was really, um, it was enabled by um, Stanford's interest in using technology for teaching and collaboration. And so I got a grant from um, the Vice Provost for Online Learning. And with a colleague of mine in the law school who runs the Human Rights Clinic, his name is James Cavallero. We started this Teaching Human Rights Collaboratory, and right now we have about 60 collaborators from around the world. Um, we're still improving the website, uh, learning how we can get people to um, use it, because it's easy to build a website, but as you know, it's hard to get people to actually become invested in its curation, so to speak. So we're slowly transforming it into simply a blog site so that people can write. And the notion was, and it gets back to what I was saying earlier about human rights, is that we, the, we were interested in looking at human rights from the ground up. In other words, there are all sorts of rights that we don't even see, right? Because we're used to thinking of it canonically in terms of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and we think of those 33 clauses, and 
and we don't really understand how that might appear in the world. And so what we want to do is, again, use the sort of the, the collective imagination of people to think of well, what kinds of rights might we think of or what kinds of rights seem to be precarious and need to be redefined or reimagined. And so uh, we've been going now for about five or six years, and we're constantly rethinking things. But the website is up, and uh, we'll continue to reach out to get more collaborators. We're particularly interested in um, getting like high school teachers involved and, and other um, people, um, uh, students, and we would like to um, uh, integrate at some point some photojournalism, okay. you know, something immediate, so blogs, storytelling, photojournalism, um, and, and sort of uh, develop a particular style mm -hmm. uh, that, is, uh, that can be identified. So. Uh, it's a lot of energy, but I think that this is again something that reaches out to the world and is a very and is very important. And how does that differ then from all the, the publications you founded? And right, right. Yeah. Well, to begin with, it's um, it's disseminated instantly. It's uh, um, requires, as I said, a lot of energy to keep up, but it then can become uh, if you get enough people curating it, it becomes um, sort of. Uh, perpetually in motion because mm -hmm. if you have a lot of different people involved then not just one or two or three people are doing it but everybody's participating at different rates. Mm -hmm. um, it also has a very short um, time frame so that for example when I write um, when I write a book it's supposed to be yeah. knowledge that's enshrined forever. If I write an article it will circulate but then you know be joined by other articles and be soon perhaps outdated. When I run, write a blog, it's very instant, and then who knows what will happen to it. Uh, so each of these different interventions, as, you, as it were, has a different lifespan. Uh, but what's interesting about the web and even about blogging is that those things can always be um, reintegrated into other forms. So there's a way of recombining these different um, um, texts, as it were, in, into different uh, formulations. So that's why I think it's so interesting is that when I was raised uh, as a graduate student, it was you wrote a book, went to the library, yeah, and that was it. Yeah, one Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I don't want to stop doing that at all, mm -hmm. which is why I'm writing this book. But I also want to become fluent as much as I can in the different ways that people um, learn. and. Uh, uh, so you, you've heard of the TED Talks, and I think I told you this, that at one point I met the person who invented the TED Talks, June Cohen, who was actually, uh, used to be the, um, when she was at Stanford, she was the editor of the student newspaper, and she was the first person to bring it online. And so I asked her, well, how did you think of TED Talks? And she said, because I realized that everybody likes to learn, you know, whether it's how to fix a flat tire or do a tune-up or to paint a mural, you know. The, the mind just wants to grow, uh, and yet it's often um, um, frustrated by, well, do I take a class? Do I have to spend 10 weeks doing it? Do I have to go, you know, three hours? Uh, so what, what, what ways can you get people just interested in the topic? And so they hit upon the 18 minutes, and that just sort of gets, that's, a ga that's sort of a peak at something interesting and then you take it from there at your own pace mm -hmm. for as long as you want to do it. So 
I, I think that in all my work, I'm interested at least, and it gets back to your question about ethics in the classroom, giving people the sense that there are options in life. Um, some of them are not viable, some of them are. Some of them have to be worked at either individually or collaboratively. But we, we can't, it's almost an existential question. We shouldn't accept the world as it is. You know, uh, if it was, if it was more perfect, perhaps. <laughs> but right now, there are, there are a lot of things that are wrong. And for example, in at Stanford, you think of Stanford now as being dominated by computer science and engineering, but the new power on the Stanford campus really is biotech. Oh. You know, it, it's it's medicine, and it's this whole drive to cure diseases and to make life. You know, everybody could have a life expectancy of 150 years or whatever. Mm -hmm. And my thought is... What's the quality wha of that life? Yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> what's the quality of the life? Why would one want to live that long, even if one could hobble about and, you know, still yeah. speak? And, uh, you know, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. You know, it's, it's just a matter of you being alive mm -hmm. versus being a participant in life, yeah. right? Uh, and so I think that it'd be great if we could extend life, but if we can't at the same time, you know, solve some of these problems, and especially, um, you know, I, I think that people have, you know, you, I'm sure you've met people like this that are just marvelous human beings. I mean, yeah. they, they may have had, and they have- Quite often teachers. Well, <laughs> yeah, I, I, some, but you know, uh, you know, some people that have had the worst lives possible, I mean, just oh, have had yeah. worse, very bad material, you know, situations and all that, but are so generous and kind, and, and they don't let that stop them from being uh, kind to other people. It would be wonderful if we could all sort of understand that we are in this thing together, especially environmentally. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah, which is which is very important. Uh, That's also part of your club. Yeah, yeah, that we, we share a common fate in many ways, and that Ultimately, nobody's going to be protected. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but again, one of, the things I, one of the things I've worked on in my class, and also I think in terms of my, my writing and my art and my own life, is that you can't take on the world. And the best, the best moments I've had are when students who have graduated, maybe they're 10 years into their postgraduate life, you know, just write me an email saying, you know, I, I really think back on that class, or I think about what you said about this or that. And to me, that's really what is meaningful about being a teacher because, you know, you can graduate and then two, two months later you can forget most of what you've learned. Mm -hmm. But just having, again, planted certain ideas or possibilities in students' minds and having them register that at some point really makes me feel like, you know, maybe there is such a thing as immortality because they might tell that to somebody else and, you know, yeah. that idea or that capacity might be passed on to other people. Imaginative immortality. Yeah, yeah. And so then how have your, how have your books uh, evolved the questions of your mm. students? Yeah. To what they're interested in? Yeah, yeah. I think that one of the main um, issues that a lot of my students are well, I, I'll tell you, this, this, this is an interesting experiment I did last year, which was that um, the first day of class, you know, normally a, a professor will go in and read the syllabus and tell the students what the course is about and tell them the questions that are going to be important for the course. And I think one, one term I went into class and I thought I'd do something entirely different. I said, 
um, before we do the regular stuff, um, I want you to spend 10 minutes talking with, you know, some other, you know, breaking them into small groups and say, I want you to tell me what questions are in your mind. And it can be about this course, or it can be about anything. What was the course? Uh, it, was, it was a course, it was called um, Comparative Fictions of Ethnicity, in which we read authors that were trying to understand their, their identities through literature, what that, what that meant. And so the students really, they were, they were both very excited, but also puzzled, you know, what, what's going to happen? But they were, so they, they were up for the yeah. task. And I'll never forget some of the questions that they came up with. And the one that sort of struck me most profoundly was um, one student asked, what is your responsibility when one of your parents entrusts you with a secret? <laughs> you know? <laughs> I mean, things like that. that you, of course, that's a profound thing. Or that's a novel, right? <laughs> it, exactly, exactly. And, or, or things like, um, what, yeah, I think it was, I was a w young woman and her mother confessed something to her and what was she supposed to do with this? You know, that again, and then other things like how do you know when you really know somebody else? Or, and the things like this that were just so elementally human. Uh, and that was, I think, a good exercise because it got the students um, receptive to a asking questions in a, an imaginative way without any particular constraint or direction. Right. Because when you, can, when you shape a question a certain way, you know, the students think, oh, he wants this answer. Right. But that's not really the question, that's a, that's a pretext. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then the fact that they understood that I was listening, that, that mm -hmm. I wanted to hear what they said without me setting the stage for what they should be interested in. Mm -hmm. So, I think that my my um, writing always has that. But I mean, for example, the recent piece on the genocide in Burma was, you know, people don't know anything about this, or very very few people know about it. At least not to the scale that it's it's w warranted. Right? I mean, this is the worst genocide in the world going on right now, and people just don't know anything about it. And so, I think it's important to to both use this case as an example of how we need to explore the world more, uh, as well as understanding the particular issues involved in, in how it is that these people do not have a voice. I mean, getting back to my, my the topic of my book. And maybe, I mean, it's interesting talking to you about this because I haven't talked about my book since I've been in Paris, even though I was supposed to be writing it. Uh, because now I'm thinking, you know, I should really talk, uh, uh, I incorporate some notion about listening, you yeah. know. I mean, it's not just a matter of having a voice, but, you know, who do we listen to? Who do we deem, you know, nonsensical? What are our criteria? Um, so I think, you know, that, that's another very important part of teaching, and it has to do with not just having students hear you, but also you hearing your students. And, you know, it gets back into the writing and back into art and or anything. How it is it that we, you know, there's been endless, you know, studies about museum culture. I mean, you know, how are, how are people trained to look at, at things? You know, the John Berger book. Oh, or yeah. do they even see, see? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. I, this is important because mm -hmm. this, 
And this is, I mean, it gets back to what you were talking about when you were interviewing Harold Bloom. I mean, what's the canon? What, what do you think you have to know to be educated? I mean, all these things are, you know, that's what's really interesting about new media is that, and the fact that uh, technology has made it easy to produce music, to disseminate it, to, you know, bypass the music industry, to get things out there for free, is that, um, there's a lot of garbage, but then there's a lot of really interesting garbage. <laughs> you yeah. know, I mean, this, you know, you know, I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there's stuff that maybe only has a tiny audience, but for whatever reason, those folks are getting something out of it. So, um, but that's that's I think getting back to the idea of politics of voice. That you know, we are so used to um, politics means voting, or politics meanings party politics, right? Th it's very formal, conventional. There's all these metrics. Yeah, yeah, all these metrics and all these sort of rituals that you go through and then for four years you don't think about politics. Or you think about it, but you grumble or something like that. But most important change comes from the ground up. Mm -hmm. I mean, it really is because um, those political parties are in power to perpetuate themselves. And if it's not within their interest to, to take on certain causes, they won't. So it really takes people uh, to, to counterbalance that, and it takes a lot of energy. And these days, um, uh, with somebody like Trump in the White House, he just dominates the media scape. I mean, anything mm. he says or does or tweets. We're really addicted to our thoughts. Addicted, and he takes up so much, again, uh, it, uh, I think I was telling you this in the previous conversation, that it used to be fairly easy to get, um, to get blogs accepted in various places, but now all that blog space <laughs> is taken up by, by Trump and his, what he's doing and on multiple fronts. So it's like he is almost uh, purposefully dominating. I mean, he's a very narcissistic person. He wants all the attention in the world, and he's getting it, mm -hmm. which means that all sorts of other important stuff is not being attended to at all. Mm -hmm. And so he's, he's very destructive in all sorts of um, purposeful and, and also uh, uh, unintended ways. So again, that's part of part of what I try to do with my writing is to say that's not the only thing that's important, and develop your own sensibilities of, uh, and and your take uh, you know, develop your own sense of, of agency about what you're going to pay attention to, and don't always rely on experts to to guide you toward what you should be looking at. Sure. There's I would I there's so many questions I want to ask you, but I don't want you touched on technology and how that has changed education and mm -hmm. just uh, yeah. the way we communicate with our imaginations. And I think uh, you raise an interesting question because it seemed like when you mentioned TED Talks and things, we are we are we want these facts or what we perceive mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. facts mm -hmm. without the details or without yeah. the human yeah. understanding. Would you want to go into that? Oh yeah, well it's it's there was one uh anecdote um, that I always use in this when you put facts and human significance is that uh, you know the, f the very very beautiful and very well known novel um, by Toni Morrison Beloved and for those who don't know it it's the story of a, uh, a woman it's, it's a real life story of a runaway slave who uh, escapes to a free state and then the uh, slave masters come after her and they, uh, they're they about to take her back into captivity along with three, uh, her children 
And so she decides to kill her children because um, she feels that you know, she'd rather have them dead than suffer the life she had lived as a slave. And she um, only is successful in killing one before the bounty hunters come. And so Toni Morrison said, when she was asked about the novel and why she wrote it, she said, well, we knew the facts. We knew that Margaret Gardner had been convicted of not murder because um, Africans were not considered to be people, but she was uh, convicted of destruction of property because that's the way uh, slaves were regarded. So we knew all the facts, we knew the dates and all of that, but then Morrison said, but we didn't know the truth. And so I always ask my students, what does she mean by that? And of course, there's no one answer. But it gets you to think, well, what's what are the power of facts? And then what is what is truth? And my my answer to that question is, what, what does she mean by truth? Is what you just said, which is the human significance of things, right? And for Morrison, I think what she's teaching us in that novel is that the human significance of the facts of slavery. I mean, everybody knows there were there were slaves, and they know the rules and the laws, and the and the punishments and all the things that accrue around slavery. But what were the human costs? And in the novel, it's very clear that the human costs aren't weren't just to um, the slaves, although they were predominantly toward uh, on the slaves, but everybody that was living at that time. I mean. One of the most unnatural things you can imagine is a parent killing their own child. You know, so how is it that this fact called slavery dehumanized people so so universally, including whites? I mean, it made them into bounty hunters rather than, you know, simply people. They became operatives in an institution, and you could say that in the United States, the legacy of slavery and the dehumanizing. Um, aspect of slavery, which was, which was profound, uh, continue to this day. Um, and so we really haven't ever reconciled our, uh, ourselves to our past. So even though we know all the facts, you know, maybe we don't know all the facts and we're continually um, finding out new facts, which I think is very important. And not to mention that in Native American history. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But always at the moment that we absorb the facts, try to puzzle out, well, what did, it, what did those facts mean? How did it impact people's lives? Uh, and we can ask the same question about our own historical moment. What's the fact of Donald Trump's election? How, what's the human significance of that? How is that going to actually change the way the world is? So I think that facts are important. We can't do without facts, but we should not stop our thinking simply by integrating the facts into our knowledge base, but also imagine what's the human significance of those facts. I don't, I don't want to, uh, I didn't exhaust your patience. There was other no, 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 this is great. Parents and yeah, you yeah. told me that wonderful story about waiting. I'll, I'll just mention a few things that are in my mind. Okay, okay, speak. sure. Uh, about the waiting, the love story, and then yeah. that's what we missed. Um, you spoke about painting, mm -hmm. and you know the, that interesting transition when you were Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, that was exactly the course of things. I was, um, so I started my, fir my first um, college experience was at San Francisco State University. 
and that was um, a really exciting uh, place to be in the very, very late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and I was 19 at the time that I was taking that journalism class and taking then those complex courses from those Greek journalists. And my father died. Um, and that shattered my whole world because he was a very, very, um, I mean, we all have, have different fathers, <laughs> but uh, he was somebody who started off fairly modestly as one of 10 children in Hawaii and then ended up being a world famous um, neurosurgeon. And so I saw him save people's lives. He was a very godlike figure for me and for him to have this person who was whose profession was to save lives uh, not be able to save his own was 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 shattering to me because that was the first um, family member I'd ever lost <coughs> and so I stopped out of school and that was the first time I came to Paris actually I just wanted to I'd never left the United States so I just came here because I had some friends uh, but I spent a lot of time just trying to um, not even, I would say part of the time I was trying to understand what had happened. Uh, I had no idea what it would mean to me in my future life. But then a lot of the time I was also just trying not to think about things. In other words, I remember waking up each day just thinking, how am I going to get through the day? How am I going to just occupy this time and um, I had a friend whose mother was a painter and he was a very good artist and so he was my best friend as a matter of fact and so I had started to just paint because I was interested in it and then I just would paint for in, in that period and I say that period lasted maybe six or eight months I would paint for know eight to ten hours a day I would just sit there and put on some music and, and just and I was just using um, at first watercolors but then I was very interested in um, I like the intensity of acrylics well I like the intensity of oils but you know I did I was still you know I was living with my mother because you know, she just lost um, her husband and so I couldn't you know have all the turpentine around and all that I didn't also wanted something immediate so I didn't want so I was w using these acrylics that I really liked because they were so vibrant and dense and they had all of that and, and watercolors were too sort of thin for me. Um, and so I would just I'd get a book of, of you know, art, uh, paper, you know, and just paint, 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 paint. And so uh, after that six to eight month period, I um, sort of had exhausted myself and, and I put those away and then um, but it sort of got me through all that. And again, I never tried to paint professionally because I always felt that you had to be original in some ways and have something to say, and I didn't. It was all, it was stuff that I was saying to myself or, uh, and then. Sometimes feeling is the original. Yeah, well that's, that yeah. I'm really glad, <laughs> that's a really nice way of putting it. And so, uh, you, you've, you've met my wife Sue V, and so I met her, boy, so I met her three years after my father died. And so it was still, I was still, I mean, I'm still processing it now and I'm 100 years old, but um, 
when I when I when we became very very close, uh, I said, well, you know, and I had these. I think she came to my apartment once. I had a wood block up. She said, oh, I didn't know you could do that. I said, well, yeah, but I, I, I just it's fun. She said, well, let me see some of your other things. And to this day, I mean, as recently as last week, we were going past some art. And I said, David, you could do better than that. And I said, I probably could. She <laughs> said, well, why don't you? I mean, you, know, you really, and, 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 you know, and you know spouses are not always generous. Uh, but she said, you know, I just think you're a fantastic painter. And I said, well, um, so maybe, you know, after I write these books, I will do that. Uh, I've tried using my iPad, and it's good yeah. for sketching and getting sort of some compositional things out there, but I really like the physicality yeah, of, you need of, of the wet brush yeah. and just that, that tactile sense. Um, but right now, I, I think that that's, painting for me is very much a, a space and a time. Uh, you just need a block of time like that. You can't, you can't, uh, and you need a whole segment of, of your life almost. And right now, I'm just I'm just too involved in um, in writing and using words. But I can see myself in a few years after I, I write this book, um, doing more painting uh, and things like that. Because it is, again, something that is um, it's creative and it's meaningful. And often, what I tell people, especially my son, is you know, human beings are fallible. We all are. Uh, things come and go, but um, when you create something, that's something that nobody can take away. I mean, mm. um, especially if you're doing it for yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. your fingerprint. It's your yeah, way yeah. of breathing. It's yeah. not something yeah. you learn. Yeah, yeah. Really, yeah. I mean, you learn, but you don't, yeah, yeah. you can't change that. Exactly. So, um, and it's sort of a, a mark, I mean, I never kept a journal, mm-hmm. you know, but I kept paintings, and so they yeah. sort of I don't know, know precisely what was going through my mind when I did that, but I knew I can c- I can recapture sort of the the frame of mind or feeling that I had when I was doing those things. Ah, it is interesting how that is true. You can go back in time. I do want to ask you. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Canon and what are the authors mm-hmm. in your Canon? Mm-hmm. You like mm-hmm. that word? Yeah. Um, yes. I think that. Um, um, my canon is growing, and I think that. Uh, well, let me say, let me put it in two ways. One is it's almost like music, and you know how it is that in certain phases of your life, there's a certain kind of music that just speaks to you, or it might even be you know three or four different modalities that uh, that strike you and, and capture some have some resonance. Mm-hmm. It's the same with with literature. So I always I always get this question from students saying, you know, what are the five books that you would have me read? Well, you can say more than five. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't really have more than five because they shift. I mean, (laughs) I have like a slot of five, but they shift all the time. And I'm really beginning to appreciate novels that um, are unusual in the sense that they're, um, they're hard to read, not because they're, uh, abstract but because they are coming from a worldview that I'm not familiar with and it forces me to reconsider for example there's a marvelous novel called The Bleeding of the Stone by and this person's last name is Alconi A L uh, hyphen K O N I he's this amazing person he's probably about mid 50s he was born as part of this north african um, nomadic tribe uh, and he actually taught himself Arabic. 
because he was he was trading uh, his family was tra doing uh, was trading and then uh, at oasises and things like that and then he just became he has a real gift for language and he ended up getting a phd from being a nomadic person to being a, getting a phd in comparative literature from um i think it was maxim gorky so, some uh, i forget which um russian university oh. just just amazing but this novel is about the desert mm. and, and sort of and the impact that the desert being discovered by first the Italians during the First World War and then the Americans and then you know you could see the intrusion of the um, uh, petroleum industry and all this uh, and it's just this incredible uh, text that incorporates fantasy mythology metaphysics, religion, anthropology, and it's told in such a unique way that it completely unsettles you. Uh, so I think things like that are really powerful, just things that are unsettling and um, get you to see that the world is much broader than you would think. But the same thing was true of when the first time I read Beloved. I mean, when Beloved first came out, I remember just hearing about the main story and it was during the time that Sylvie was pregnant with our son. <laughs> and I thought, I can't read this book now. It's just too, you know, just the idea of it would be too. But after, after he was born, became a viable human being. <laughs> then then I, I read it. I thought, wow. Because, again, it just changed my, my sense of it, it. It worked both ways. A, my experience being a parent made the, the story that much more resonant. And... That story made my understanding of, of history and slavery in particular much more resonant too. Because mm -hmm. I put together my personal story of, of being a parent, bringing life into the world with the idea of somebody being, having their, their most ardent desire being taking away a life that they, they created. I mean, what, what could account for that? So uh, I think a lot of, of the novels I like are things that uh, change your way of thinking one way or the other, at least momentarily, and give you a new window onto the world. And so I guess we should finish uh, on that note, at this, we, we already discussed, you know, ways, but I think we can go into it a bit deeper, mm -hmm. how we can, in, what are we doing wrong with our humanistic education model? How oh. can we improve oh. it? And I just think about what you may have, conversations you may yeah. have had with your son, and if yeah. you look towards the future, yeah. and, you know, <laughs> the future we're giving our children. Yeah. Well, I think that um, uh, the main thing we can change is the way that we um, have created very particularly confined spaces for things. And so the humanities we understand simply through college education. When you, when you think of the humanities, it's that. And I've written at least a couple of blogs on this saying that the minute that you start is a word that you, you used recently in our interview the metrics the moment that you think accept the metrics or the semiotics of, of how the humanities appear to us as being how many enrollments how many majors you know an English major philosophy I mean, all those things confine the humanities to simply that space of the university which is tiny which is really tiny. I mean, it takes up so much of our mental space, but really it's a tiny, if you think of how much space the universities occupy in Paris versus the number, the amount of space that 
you know, museums, music venues, movie theaters, and all that, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, so, A, there's no, we're used to the United States of constantly talking about the crisis in the humanities. To my mind, there's no crisis in the humanities. Mm-hmm. Statistics have come out over and over again that people are reading, in fact, more books than they used to. Mm-hmm. And if you think of humanities as, you know, somebody with a banjo in a plaza, Mm-hmm. Paying for you know spare change. I mean that's the humanities. Yeah. It's when you go by it, it changes. I mean, even when people come on to the metro and they're doing yes. their thing. <laughs> I mean, I always it's it's uh, some of them are really good. Some of them are amazing. Yeah. 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 Some of them are great, and um, and so I all I mean back in the days before there was mass media. Um, there used to be, at some point in the United States history, uh, and pr- I'm sure in Europe too, you see films of the, of the uh, 18th and 19th century, people would just have a, a piano or a harpsichord or a violin in their house and they would play it for their friends that came over. There wasn't this division yeah, between yeah. what, yes. Yeah, between professional, professional and amateur and all that. Um, and so uh, I always like to say, the, say the the etymology of the word amateur means uh, it comes from the same word as amor. I mean, it means to love something. You're doing it because you love it, not because you're getting remuneration. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, there, are to- there are tons of, for example, Sylvie uh, takes this course at Stanford of um, community chorus, and it's the most heavily subscribed um, class. Oh, wow. No, people are waiting in line oh. to take it because it's just being with people and just feeling free to be artistic mm-hmm. and humanistic uh, even though you're an amateur right yeah. uh, and amateur theaters are amazing and uh, so I think this whole partitioning I guess that's what I would use the partitioning classic and containment mm-hmm. of the humanities into what's what professional what is um, unit you know earning in universities is impoverishing us mm-hmm. and I think uh, that you know whether it's you painting because you're mourning your father or you're picking up a guitar because you've always wanted to know what that and how to do that mm-hmm. I remember the first time I started learning how to teach I taught myself how to play the guitar uh, as anybody who starts by playing a guitar with steel strings versus nylon strings it hurts I mean, it's physically painful. It can hurt. hurt. It's physically painful to push your uh, finger against, especially those very thin, the high E E string. But you develop calluses. You just keep going, and pretty soon, you don't feel it anymore. And and that's, I think, something that uh, we have to do in terms of humanities is is to retrain our brain. And it might, it's painful, it's unsettling, it doesn't seem to make sense. But uh, so in that case, you know, I, I think that, uh, no, we don't need, uh, you know, when people attack literature professors, well, I don't need you to teach me how to read. And I said, well, no, you don't, because you can read it yourself, but I can, I can teach you certain skills that then become yours. And that's really what it is. It's about... It's all learning is that. It's all yeah. learning is that, mm-hmm. right, right. Um, so that's, that's what I think about the humanities. I think it sh- they should be, the walls should be broken. People could, should support the arts in whatever they, way they want. You should learn an art because mm-hmm. it's life-sustaining. Um, it makes life more bearable. It makes life, exactly. Uh, 
it doesn't matter. You're not doing it for anybody else necessarily. You're just doing it for your sense of I'm participating in something. When when I teach literature, I say to students, you know, one of the one of the most common times that I'm reading is when I feel lonely, or puzzled, or lonely and puzzled, <laughs> because I'm read I'll read a book and I'm realizing that I'm taking part in a conversation that's been going on for centuries. You know, what is love? What is betrayal? What is desire? What is happiness? What's funny? You know, and realizing that people, you know, human beings have been, there's no set answer. Yeah. And my puzzlement is shared by Shakespeare, for God's sake, you know? I mean, this, that's pretty, that's pretty um, astounding, you know? Why we haven't figured it out? Why yet. we haven't figured <laughs> it out, but we're not in it, we're not in it by ourselves alone. I mean, this yeah. is the, the human predicament. And we're not going to have a complete answer, but life is for learning. And life is for puzzling things out and making slight improvements as much as possible. And um, I think that often when, when I talk to folks, and this, this, is, this has been proven by statistics, that some of the most memorable classes they, they have in the university are small human humanities courses. What is talking about? I mean, this is why book clubs are so popular now. It's because people are coming back to that, that mode of, of, of being communal in that sense. And also I think that, uh, I, I suppose we should edit there what I just wanted to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah. Um, also the fact that the novel accepts all of life. Yeah. And it's a very interesting way of learning, as you said, because yeah. it's not that there's no one answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway. And it means that, again, when, when I teach the same novel over and over again, which I do, two things happen. One is that I often see things I didn't see. And secondly is often students will bring up things that I didn't see. And so it's, we're teaching each other that way. They'll say, for example, a student might say something that might seem on the surface totally ridiculous. Like, well, doesn't it mean this? I think, well, and I'll stop and think, it might. Because I have to come in, in that in that situation, I have to come up with a good reason. Wait a second, I have to get the author off. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I have to. I ha I'm responsible for giving an intelligent reply to that student. I can't say no. That's that's impossible. I have to. I have to substantiate that assertion, right? So and that's why I love teaching. Yeah. And also, as you know from conversations with writers, yeah, quite often the authors they, yeah. don't know. Yeah, yeah. It was yeah. happening in their subconscious. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's the other the other. Absolutely. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Chase Van Langen. Assignment editor is Sorella Lark. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Andolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your own creative works to submission at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition. Traveling to leading universities or published on our website, www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.